0: Today we're gonna meet the Patrick Mahomes of the Book of Acts. Um, So I would guess that everybody here knows who Patrick Mahomes is and known about him for a while, but now that Taylor Swift is showing up at all the Chiefs games. I mean, you can't avoid her. She's at the games, she's at the concerts, she's even at church, right? But now that all the Swifties are on board on the Chiefs bandwagon, everybody, we can be confident, knows that Mahomes is currently the best quarterback in the NFL, two-time Super Bowl champion. And so I bet when he came out of high school, all the big colleges, like the Notre Dames, and the Texas, and the Alabamas, the Georgias, they all wanted Patrick Mahomes on their team, right? No. No, coming out of high school, he got three Division I offers and went to the very modest Texas Tech University. So I bet after college, like after he proved himself there and went into the draft in 2017, then everybody knew, right, that they were jockeying the NFL teams to get Patrick Mahomes on their team. Not, 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 not so much. He didn't go to the 10th pick. Nine other players were taken before what would become the best quarterback in the NFL, in fact, Mahomes wasn't even the first quarterback taken. That honor belongs to Mitchell Trubisky, who was drafted by the Bears, bombed there, and now sits on the bench at the Steelers. So I don't quite understand. You mean the NFL, who has so much investment, so much money, uh, so many people's livelihood, in the quarterback, they can't figure out what a good quarterback's going to be coming out of college? No. No. I mean, most of the quarterbacks that come out of college that they think are going to be good turned out to be busts. They don't live up to the hype. In fact, when Mahomes came out in, out of the college in the NFL draft in 2017, you, the, one of the writers for the big, the big magazines, the big newspapers, uh, they, they said, hey, the Chiefs blew this. They shouldn't have drafted Patrick Mahomes there. And they gave him a, 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 a grade of C-minus. C minus. Remember, this guy gets paid to know a lot about this stuff. And here's what he said back then. He said, calling Mahomes a project is a major understatement. He's nowhere near ready to play in the NFL. And honestly, he may never be. Between his inconsistent accuracy due to poor mechanics, his tendency to bail from clean pockets, his lack of field vision, he's going to leave as many big plays on the field as he creates. This was a risky pick. Oops. <laughs> Uh, uh, not so much, right? Not so much. Well, the, the Bible is full of stories of God choosing to work through people that others, that the world has overlooked and written off. Here's how it says it in, in 1 Corinthians 1. God chose the Foolish things. God chose. Not, not, not was dealt the foolish thing. No, no, God chose. He went out of his way to pick and select and choose the foolish things to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. See, God takes that which the world gives a C minus to and turns it into an A plus leader. God chose to work through David, who even his own brothers and father didn't believe in. God chose to work through Moses, who couldn't speak. God chose to work through Rahab, a prostitute. God chose to work through Esther, uh, uh, an orphan. God chooses to use ordinary people in extraordinary ways. We're going through the book of Acts, and in Acts 6, there's this big dispute. And and it's between the Hellenistic or Greek-speaking Jews and the Hebraic or the Aramaic-speaking Jews, and the dispute is over these widows who are being overlooked. And so what happens is the apostles say, okay, look, You pick seven people who are full of the Holy Spirit, who are full of wisdom, and let them run this program in a way that's fair for for everybody. Okay, so it tells us who they picked, right? So here's the names of the people they picked. They picked Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, and also Philip, that's our guy. Uh, this is the Patrick Mahomes of the book of Acts. Philip, right? Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas. I can't even pronounce these names, right? And, and, and these are the people. They pick. And, and Philip's just a name on a list to take, take care of widow's food. Nobody's thinking Philip is this great future leader who's gonna do incredible things for the Lord. Nobody's thinking that. And yet that's what happens. I mean, Philip doesn't have anything that people like us look at. There's no uh, education, no special family connections, no money, no political uh, background. I mean, there's nothing that the world is looking for. Because we always, always get suckered into looking at the outward. And God is looking for the person. God wants to work through the person whose heart is fully devoted to him whose heart yields to him. That's who God wants to use. But if God wants to use Philip, then I think God wants to use you and me too. And I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, well, but what what do I have that God would use? I mean, I really got nothing going for me. And God would agree. You're right, you don't. But it's never been about you. It's about the Holy Spirit who lives inside of you. Right? Right? Well, God won't use me. I'm David. I don't have any special talents. I'm Moses and can't speak. I'm Rahab with a sordid past. I'm, I'm, I'm Esther from a broken family. Yeah, but I read the book. And the book says in 1 Corinthians, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. This is why God chose the weak and God chose the foolish. We fixate on the jar, but God says there's this all-surpassing power that works inside of you, and God gets the glory then. But we fixate on the outside. We fixate on the same things the world fixates on, and, and, and we start getting defined by those. And so we start thinking in this small kind of box of what we could possibly do. But, but wouldn't you say, God, I don't want to be defined anymore by how the world defines me. That I'm not going to listen to the labels they put on me. But instead, I'm going to listen to you. I'm going to listen to your word. I'm going to trust in the power of the Holy Spirit who lives inside of me. I'm going to let him work in me. I'm not going to fixate on the jar, but the all-surpassing power. See, this is the person God wants to work through. The ordinary person to the extraordinary thing. That's who God wants to work through. Now, how did God work through Philip? And how does that give us a picture of how he might want to work through us? Well, we got to go back to Acts chapter one, verse eight. This is kind of that whole outline for the book of Acts. So we kind of got to go back to it over and over and just remind yourself, what's this book about? Jesus says to the disciples after his resurrection, he says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now, when we read that, I think we're supposed to go, well, why Samaria? Like Jerusalem, okay, that's the city they're all in. And Judea is kind of like the county. And then the ends of the earth, like circles, right? Why why Samaria? we got to remind ourselves, what, what is Acts about? Acts explains how the church went from 120 people after Jesus' resurrection, that's 120 people. They called a big meeting, 120 people showed up. That's it. They're praying. And in three short centuries, there's over 50% of the Roman Empire claims Christ as Lord. How does that happen? Well, Jesus gave them the marching orders. That's Acts 1.8. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. But they don't follow it. I mean, not willingly at least. They, they don't leave Jerusalem. They stay put. Why? Because that's where they feel most comfortable. They felt comfortable there, so they stayed there. You and I, we have these comfort zones. Things that we, uh, places, uh, activities, responsibilities that we feel comfortable with. We feel safe. We feel at ease. It doesn't feel like it's a big task or it's really pushing us. So we say, I, I wanna stay here where I feel comfortable. We all have this tendency to, 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 to crave the comfortable. So we say things, well, I don't really feel like going from a small group member to a small group leader. Well, I don't really feel comfortable going from a crossing kids volunteer to a crossing kids teacher. Well, I don't feel comfortable asking a friend to church. Well, I don't feel comfortable praying out loud in my small group. Well, I don't feel comfortable leading family devotions or a family discussion around spiritual things. Well, I don't feel comfortable volunteering with homeless. That's way outside of my comfort zone. Because we crave comfort, just like the, the, the early church did. That's why they stayed in that zone. So, so, so God says, okay, well, I got a little something for you. Acts 8.1, 1-8 to 8, one. here we go. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. See, they wouldn't leave their comfort zone of Jerusalem, so God made them uncomfortable. Acts 8, 4. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. So the persecution comes and everybody scatters. The apostles in Jerusalem, everybody has all the ordinary people like you and me. We scatter because we're scared of the persecution, right? We're trying to get away from it. And so what we do is they just start going out and they just start telling what they've learned. It's just ordinary people doing extraordinary things used by the spirit of God. Verse five, Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. Okay, so this Samaria thing is a big deal. I mean, the first place that they end up going, or at least we're told about, is, is Samaria. So what's the deal with that? Why did God say, go, why did Jesus tell them, go to Samaria specifically? Well, because the Samaritans and the Jews, they, they hated each other. So what God is saying to them in Acts 1.8, when he says, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth, what he's saying to them is, is, don't just take this message of my love to the whole world. Also, make sure you take it to your enemies. Also, you make sure that you take it to the people that you don't like. Make sure you take the message of my love and my forgiveness to the people that offend you, to the people you're afraid of, to the people you don't feel comfortable around. Because guess what? God so loved the world, no exceptions. See, history tells us that Samaritans and Jews, they absolutely hate each other. It was racial, it was ethnic, it was language, it was economic, it was, it, was ra- it was a lot of stuff. Religious, religion played a big part of it. So they wouldn't even, Samaritan Jews wouldn't even speak to one another. Remember when, remember when uh, Jesus approached that woman on the well? She was a Samaritan. And just look how she f- framed their relationship. You are a Jew, and she's talking to Jesus, and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink of water when Jews and Samaritans won't have anything to do with each other? I mean, she's just shocked that a Jew would talk to her and see her as a real person because to Jews, Samaritans weren't people, individuals. They were just part of this group we don't like. And it went both ways. Not only did they not have anything to do with each other, not only would they not speak, but they didn't even live in the same villages. So here's Luke 9. He sent messengers on ahead who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. So Jesus and the disciples are heading to Jerusalem. They stop in the Samaritan village to kind of spend the night and see what happens. But the people there did not welcome him because he was heading to Jerusalem. So it wasn't just that the Jews hated the Samaritans or the Samaritans returned the favor. When the disciples, James and John, make a note, John saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven and destroy them? Hey, you know what? I hate the Samaritans. So Jesus, can we napalm them right here? Like, can we nuke them right here? And this is the group that Philip has the audacity to go tell about Jesus. He has the audacity to go to Samaria and tell them how they can have a relationship with Jesus and be forgiven and how it changed life. And then shock of all shock, the Samaritans start believing. Well, they have no category for that. That's not part of the plan. See, their plan had been grace for me, but not for thee. They didn't want their enemies to become their brothers and sisters in Christ. But remember, for God so loved the world, no exceptions. So the word, it gets back to Jerusalem. Hey, the Samaritans are coming to faith in Jesus. And, and the people in Jerusalem, the apostles are like, no way, that's possibly to be. No, no, no. And like, no, I think it's really happening. It's Philip down there. And they go, Philip, I mean, wasn't he just serving tables like an hour ago? We don't really trust him. Let's send some bigwigs down there. Let's send Peter and John down there and kind of get the feel for what's really happening. Verse 14. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent the bigwigs, Peter and John, remember that, to Samaria. When they arrived, they prayed for the new believers there that they might receive the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit had not yet come on any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Uh, So people have been asking me this week, uh, because they went to the Acts devotional guide. Hopefully you have one of those. Maybe you started and got sidetracked. Totally understand. But you can just get back on the next day. You get so much out of going to that uh, devotional workbook. But people who are going through it this week asked me, hey, why, did the, why didn't the Holy Spirit come on the Samaritans immediately? Why did they believe in Jesus and the Spirit didn't come until later when Peter and John were there? see, the Bible teaches that when a person puts their faith in Jesus, when a person becomes a Christian, God's Spirit, the Holy Spirit, comes to live inside of them. But it was different for the Samaritans. And here's why I think it, it was different. It's because the Samaritans were the enemies, the ones they never expected. They had no category for Samaritans coming to faith. So they wanted Peter and John, the bigwigs, to go down there and check it out. And they wanted the, And God wanted the Holy Spirit to come on the Samaritans right then to prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that they were believers, that God loved them too, that they were a part of God's family. But what what I I like about this is they sent John to do it. They sent John. Remember, he was the guy who wanted to nuke the Samaritans. And now he's down there testifying, these people are really believers, right? The, The people he wanted to wipe out, he's now worshiping with. He's now working together in the name of Jesus, but an hour ago, he wanted to kill them all. Remember, remember that they didn't just stumble into Samaria. Jesus had told them from the very beginning, Jerusalem, uh, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. This was Jesus's idea and not their idea. His plan, not theirs. See, Jesus has this church planting strategy. And I just imagine Jesus and, and the Father talking, and they're like, well, how are we gonna take this 120 people and blow it up and conquer the Roman Empire and, and have people all around the world for centuries believing in Jesus and calling him Lord? It's like, well, Jesus, well, I got this idea. We'll, we'll take two groups that hate each other, and we'll bring them to faith, and we'll put them in the same church, and then we'll tell them, John 13, 35, by this everyone will know you're my disciples. If you love one another, you see Jesus is a church planning strategy? It's like those who are, hate each other outside the church. now, now, now come to faith and, and, and inside of Jesus, they love one another. And when people see those who outside of Christ, who, who hate each other, love each other inside of Christ, they say, "Look, there's something there. There's a power there. Jesus is Lord. It's always been what Jesus has done. From the very beginning, when he picked the very first disciples, this is what he did. He picked people who were really different from each other and called them to follow him. That's why he called both Matthew the tax collector and Simon the zealot. Now, their issue was politics. Not not so much ethnicity. Their issue was politics because they were on opposite ends of the political spectrum. The zealots, uh, the reason Simon's called the zealot is because that was a political party that wanted to overthrow Roman rule. The, the zealots hated Rome because Rome oppressed the Jews. And so they would resort to terrorism. They'd resort to absolutely anything to overthrow the Roman government. They, it's, it, it's very uh, accurate to call the zealots extremists. See, they believed only God could rule uh, Israel, and so they said it was okay to assassinate a political, Roman political leader. It was okay to assassinate a Roman soldier. And on the other side, you got Matthew. And Matthew's like, well, you know, he's part of this group of people that looked around and said, Rome has been our uh, you know, government for 40 years now. We gotta make peace with them. We gotta compromise somehow with them. So Matthew went to work for Rome. He was Rome's tax collector. So when Simon the Zealot looked at Matthew the tax collector, here's what he saw, a traitor. Somebody who sold out his people for his own personal gain and benefit, who helped the oppressor. So if Simon and Matthew had crossed paths outside of Christ before they started following Jesus, it's very legitimate to think that Simon the Zealot would have killed Matthew the tax collector. And now they're brothers in Christ. Now they're following Jesus. Now they're worshiping and working together. Jesus' strategy was to choose the anti-government extremist and the government employee tax collector, call them both to follow him, and then transform them into friends. Because John 13, 35 tells us, by this everyone will know you are my disciples. If you love one another. It's easy to love people like you, but here's what the church is. This is what Jesus intentionally made the church like. His plan was for the church to be a natural band of enemies who love each other for Jesus' sake. So, so that's what we are. Inside of here, inside of the people who think of themselves as part of the crossing. We are a natural band of enemies. Outside of Christ, we we probably don't think much alike. But inside of Christ, we love each other for Jesus' sake. And not just our church, but churches around our country, churches down the street, churches across the world. And isn't that what our country needs? As our society gets more and more fractured, I mean, where do the, 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 the poor and the wealthy or the sick and the healthy, where do they hang out together? Where do the beautiful and the rest of us, where do the Republicans and the Democrats and the Libertarians and the Green Party, where do they all hang out and get along? Where do the old and the young, people from every generation, the marrieds and the singles, the, the, where do all the people from different races, how do they come together? Where do they come together and not just live and, and, and put up with one another, but thrive? And the answer, at least according to God's plan, is supposed to be the church. And maybe you look at all that diversity and you go, man, that's beautiful. I look at it and go, man, that's complicated. Right, that's complicated. Because it's weird, we say, I want to go to a church that has all kinds of people. I want a church that's multi-generational. I want a church that's made up of people of different races and different backgrounds. I want to go to a church that's diverse. But I want them all to think like me. I want them all to like the things that I like. See, we get surprised when a diverse church has diverse thoughts. And they all don't see it the way that we do. We want a diverse church that likes the same things we like. But it doesn't work that way. A couple friends here who were at the crossing and and have moved uh, recently, but when they were here, they were part of the same small group, two women who were part of the same small group, and the, the small group knew them well, and they knew each other well. They were friends, but they were the kind of friends that talked about things that they believed in, and they talked about their differences as well as the things that they agreed upon. And, and so the small group at a Christmas party, they, they, they got them each a gift that kind of honored where they were coming from. And it, it was kind of funny because they were all laughing about it, but they took a picture together at the end of the party. And here it is. So the woman on the left got a Barack Obama biography and the woman on the right got Trump socks. And, and they knew where each other was coming from, but they loved each other and learned from one another and respected one another. Now, some of you might be upset at that. You mean you have people who are on this side or that side? Really? Yeah, you see, when we say God so loved the world, no exceptions, we think he meant it. And when he told us to love one another, we think there aren't any exceptions to that either. That's why we can say you belong here. Because wherever you're coming from, conservative, progressive, wherever you're coming from, whatever your race, rich or poor, wherever you're coming from, the PhD or the GED, the abled or the disabled, we can learn together. We can learn to love Jesus together. We can celebrate what we have in common in Jesus and show a divided world that Jesus is Lord because we're a natural band of enemies who love each other for Jesus' sake. But but Matthew and Simon, I want you to catch it. They they were opposite politically. So I want us to get that if our politics leads us to think of people who vote differently than us as enemies, if our politics leads us to accuse and attack people who are made in the image of God that Jesus died for, if our politics causes us to, to go down to church that everybody thinks like us, then we've placed the emphasis on the wrong place. See, Matthew the tax collector and Simon the zealot, they loved each other, but I don't know that they agreed with each other, right? I mean, I bet you they had long arguments around the campfire. Well, what about this, well, what about that? And, and they, they, they tried to persuade one another. But in the middle of that conversation, they knew they had something in common that was greater than their differences, and that was Jesus. You know what, sometimes we think our time, our world is different than all the others, but it's not. Back in the 1700s, during the, the, the kind of reformation in England, there's a guy named John Wesley who was the leader of the Methodist Church, founder of the Methodist Church, and, and it was, his society was as fractured like ours is. People were sniping at one another, attacking and accusing people who voted differently than them. And so he came up with these rules for the Christians in his churches. It's just three. Now, it's written in a little bit 1700 style, but I think we'll get the point, here we go. Vote without fear, reward, in other words, vote without being bribed for the person they judge most worthy. Okay, so vote for whoever you think would be best for that office. And then two, speak no evil of the person they voted against. Ouch. Because we don't really vote for people, we vote against people. Our sport is making fun of people that we vote against. Third, take, to take care of their spirits were never sharpened against those that voted on the other side. Take care that they don't become prideful or self-righteous or attack and accuse people who voted differently than them. Agree on everything? No, 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 not agree on everything. Vote for the same person? No, didn't say that. Vote for whoever you think is best, but be careful of what's happening on the inside. You think we could live by that? Election season seems to be always among us, but it's coming up in a bigger and bigger way. Do you think that we as a church could show the world that we are a natural band of enemies who love each other for Jesus' sake, that we come from all kinds of different places in life, we have all kinds of different opinions, but here's what we have in common. We call ourselves sinner and Jesus Lord. And that is the most important thing to us. The most important thing to us is not who the president or the mayor or the governor or the city council person. The most important thing to us is Jesus Lord. And we listen to him. And we will love each other. Even when it's really hard. We'll listen, we'll learn, we'll respect one another. Not just on political differences, but every difference you can imagine. Because that's a sign to the world that Jesus offers what they need. For God so loved the world, no exceptions. Let's pray. Father, we confess that, I confess at least, I'm sure that we're all in the same boat though, That, that, that we have accused and attacked those that we disagree with, that we have violated your call to love each other, to love other Christians who are very different than us, I pray, Father, that you would give us the grace to call Jesus Lord, to love God with our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. May that be a sign to a watching world, that you are who you claimed to be. You are the saving king, our saving king. May we love the world like you did, with no exceptions. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Please stand to receive God's blessing. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you believe the gospel of his son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks for worshiping with us today. Have a great Sunday.